0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informers. We are back after our winter break. The Terra Informers took some time to breathe as the new year rolled in, and now we're ready to bring you new episodes. Starting with a roundup of some of the environmental news headlines that you may have missed while we were away. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amisquitze, Beaver Hills House, or so called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you are listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on all of the environmental news headlines that you might have missed over the past couple months while we were on a break. For our first story, here's Sarah Chitzas covering a carbon capture plant owned by Shell that is emitting more than it is capturing.
1: As written about by Vice, a recent report from the human rights organization The Global Witness has raised concerns about whether carbon capture technologies are actually effective in reducing our carbon emissions. Carbon capture is sometimes called carbon capture utilization and storage, or CCUS. Carbon capture technology is a growing industry as there is more awareness about the risks associated with our high levels of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions. There are a couple of types of carbon capture. Direct air capture is used to draw carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere. This type of carbon capture isn't quite as prominent in discussions right now as carbon capture technologies that are tied specifically to industrial emissions. These kinds of technologies capture carbon as it is emitted from facilities, for example, oil refineries. Once the carbon is captured, it is compressed and either stored permanently in geological formations like oil reservoirs, or it is transformed into new materials like concrete. Theoretically, carbon capture technologies could help us reduce our carbon dioxide emissions to zero, or even negative if we were able to capture carbon at a faster rate than we are emitting it. According to the International Energy Agency, in order to reach net zero emissions by 2050, we would need to capture 7.6 gigatons of carbon dioxide, and this is about 190 times more carbon than we are currently capturing. To incentivize more carbon capture, the Canadian federal government has announced plans to launch a tax credit for companies investing in carbon capture utilization and storage sometime in 2022. There is, however, some controversy around how effective carbon capturing actually is. One big concern is that carbon capture technologies may not be capable of meeting the amount of carbon they are intended to capture. This concern has really come to light recently in the case of Shell's Quest carbon capture plant. Shell's Quest facility is a massive carbon capture plant that siphons carbon from Shell's Scotford Upgrade facility, which is located in the Edmonton area. Quest transforms the carbon it collects into a liquid which is then transported to a storage area via a pipeline and is stored 2 kilometers underground. The problem with Quest, as was reported by the Global Witness this month, is that it is releasing even more greenhouse gases than it is sequestering. From the time period of 2015 to 2019, Quest was reported as capturing 5 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. Meanwhile, during that same time period, it was found that Quest released 7.5 million tons of greenhouse gases. In an email to Vice, Shell stated that Quest is intended to demonstrate merits of carbon capture technology, but it didn't respond to allegations of Quest emitting 7.5 million tons of greenhouse gases. Critics of carbon capture see investments in it as a way to allow the oil and gas industry to continue emitting enormous amounts of carbon for longer rather than phasing the industry out and transitioning to renewable energy sources. Over 400 academics sent an open letter to Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Christa Freeland, cautioning against tax credits for new carbon capture projects, as these projects may essentially be considered as subsidies for fossil fuels, and they're not yet consistently meeting their emissions reduction targets. While carbon capture tech may have a role to play in the goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2050, perhaps we should focus on reducing our emissions through increasing renewable energy and energy efficiency. If you would like to hear more about the significance of greenhouse gases and global warming, check out our Warming World episode from May 2021. This has been Sarah Chitza's for Terra Informa.
0: Thanks Sarah. Next, here's Elizabeth Dowdell talking about the lack of penalties that Coastal GasLink has faced for environmental violations.
2: Still no penalties for Coastal GasLink environmental violations runs the January 13 headline by Amanda Follett-Hosgood in the Tai. The gist of the story is that since shortly after Coastal GasLink began pipeline work in the region, they started violating environmental standards that had been set as a condition of their operation. Specifically, Coastal GasLink had failed to properly control erosion and contain chemicals, allowing sediments and contaminated water to enter fish-bearing habitat. For reference, the harm from failed erosion control and too much sediment in waterways can range from reduced biological productivity in the system to the suffocation of fish eggs. Francis and Finley could have been those fish eggs. I mean, probably not because they are imaginary Pacific salmon, but real fish, just like them, are trying to live in those waterways. Here's a brief timeline of what's happened between Coastal GasLink and the BC Environmental Assessment Office. Early 2019, Coastal GasLink project begins. Later in 2019, the first set of orders are issued around violations found relating to wildlife attractants. The next year, October-November 2020, inspections take place. Violations are found. This time, sediment and erosion control. December 2020, orders are issued again. The Environmental Assessment Office says you need to clean up and you need to pay $10,000 in fees. Fast forward to the next spring, April, May 2021. Follow-up inspection, violations found again pertaining to sediment and contaminants. September 2021, the Environmental Assessment Office puts out a report. Its inspectors find that Coastal Gas Link is still in violation and this time recommend administrative penalties. This means charges, money, they need to pay. The next month, October, 2021, follow-up inspection is done again, violations from April, May, 2021, this, you know, the past spring, still persisting. So November, 2021, Environmental Assessment Office issues three new orders for violations relating to December 2020, so the year before, and those 2019 orders, two years before. Just a few days later, the RCMP raids on Coyote Camp take place, where over about 30 people were arrested. Then this December 2021, report is finally posted by the Environmental Assessment Office about these violations that were still not corrected as of October. What we're expecting now is that sometime... Late January here, 2022, the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change Strategy could decide if those administrative penalties should be issued for the fact that Coastal GasLink did get caught repeatedly violating these environmental orders. Or they could decide not to, um, whatever the designated authority within that ministry decides. As of January 27th, no decision has been made by the ministers even though inspectors with the Environmental Assessment Office have recommended this. So in total, over three years, 11 environmental protection orders have been issued against coastal gas link related to either animal attractants, uh, erosion and sediment control, or the release of contaminants into waterways. Coastal GasLink estimates their 670km pipeline route will cross about 625 streams, creeks, rivers and lakes once complete. So far they don't seem to be off to a great start. Why not just charge Coastal GasLink for their non-compliance? The polluter pays principle is supposed to govern environmental protection and Coastal GasLink has clearly failed to meet the required and agreed upon minimums of protection. So they should pay. Not just to clean up the mess they made, but for breaking the law, repeatedly. While the BC Environmental Assessment Office has been issuing these repeated environmental protection orders, estimates are that up to $20 million have been spent on militarized law enforcement to remove wet sweat and people and their supporters from occupying their traditional territories. Also that coastal gasoline can continue working on their pipeline. BC Green Party leader and MLA Sonia Firstnow has been critical of this fact, noting the damage to the environment has already been done and asking in the legislature when enforcement of environmental protection will happen already. Good question, Sonia.
0: Thanks Elizabeth. Now, let's stay in British Columbia for our Land and Water Defender updates from the past couple of months. It has been a while since our last News Roundup episode, and therefore a while since our last Land and Water Defenders update. The majority of this episode will be focused on a timeline of what has been happening in Wet'suwet'en territory since December. In late December, a group of land defenders returned to occupy a protest camp called Coyote Camp that was blocking access to a coastal gas link pipeline drill site in northern British Columbia. This was one month after dozens of high-profile arrests of Wet'suwet'en members, supporters, and journalists took place on Wet'suwet'en territory after the Gidimden clan of Wet'suwet'en nation issued an eviction notice to pipeline workers from the territory. During this return to Coyote Camp, Coastal GasLink stated that, quote, 10 to 12 camouflaged and masked opponents took over the Martin Forest Service Road and Maurice River drill site, end quote. In an article for CBC, Jennifer Wickham, media co-coordinator for the Done Checkpoint, noted that with cold winter temperatures being below negative 20 degrees Celsius, many people were wearing face coverings. Wickham stated that the eviction notice given by Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs to Coastal Gas Link still stands, but that given police operations at the pipeline barricades have been frequent, with 75 people having been arrested in total on the territory, people in Coyote Camp Anticipated more arrests and police action against, quote, unarmed Indigenous people, end quote. British Columbia's new Democratic Party government is facing pressure from within and from supporters to find a new approach to handling the conflict in Wet'suwet'en territory. 1,400 NDP members and supporters across the country signed a statement expressing anger at the provincial government's response. The BC NDP have been distancing themselves from the police actions, with leadership saying that the provincial government does not direct the RCMP. However, reporting from APTN found that Solicitor General Mike Farnworth approved a request from the RCMP for additional resources under an article of the Provincial Police Service Agreement prior to each police raid. An article in the TIE laid out that, according to the agreement, quote, the RCMP will, at the written request of the Provincial Minister made to the commanding officer, be redeployed to such extent as it is reasonably necessary to maintain law and order. End quote. Back in November, a group of Gixan hereditary chiefs, matriarchs, and elders issued an eviction notice to MLA Nathan Cullen, citing, quote, failure to ensure the safety of his constituents, including the Gixan and Wet'suwet'en. Later in December, Cullen released a letter to the RCMP commissioner asking for the review of recent RCMP actions concerning force used by RCMP members in his riding. In the article for the Ta'i written on January 10th, the RCMP said that there were no current plans for enforcement on wet sweat territory. However, observers reported increased RCMP resources in the area during the days around when the article was written. An RCMP airplane landed in Smithers, and several police vehicles were seen at hotels. In mid-January, Coastal GasLink attempted to block members of the media from accessing Wet'suwet'en territory, stating that they were in breach of an injunction. The injunction refers to the BC Supreme Court decision to bar anyone from blocking construction of the pipeline being built. According to another article for the Tai, the injunction prohibits, quote, physically preventing, impeding, restricting, or in any way physically interfering with, or counselling others to prevent, impede, restrict, or physically interfere with any person or vehicle traveling to or accessing the vicinity of the area, end quote, with the area referring to that that surrounds the Maurice West Service Road. It also prohibits anyone from blocking access to people working on the pipeline, from going within 10 meters of workers doing pipeline construction, and from threatening employees and or interfering with their work. Amanda Follett-Hosgood, the journalist reporting for the TIE, said that the journalists that Coastal GasLink tried to block in mid-January were not doing any of these things. You might remember from our updates on forest defenders at Ferry Creek that Teal Jones temporarily lost its injunction when the BC Supreme Court ruled that the RCMP had improperly blocked the media's right to access the logging area. And speaking of which, for a quick update on Ferry Creek, Teal Jones has had their injunction against Ferry Creek protesters reinstated after they appealed a judge's denial of the company's request to extend it. The public protest camps are currently closed for the winter, but we will keep an eye on this story as it develops. The injunction was reinstated through a unanimous ruling by BC's Court of Appeal. The injunction allows logging company Teal Cedar Products, which is a subsidiary of Teal Jones, to continue logging near the Ferry Creek Watershed. The company's injunction was initially set to expire this past September and was blocked for a short time when Justice Douglas Thompson denied the company's request to extend it. The reasoning behind this denial was that Justice Thompson said that the degree of police enforcement and conflict with forest defenders and protesters in the area was, quote, a substantial infringement of civil liberties, end quote, and that the actions of said police would damage the court's reputation. After Justice Thompson's decision, the company appealed, and the B.C. Court of Appeal has ruled in Teal Jones's favor. Three justices stated that, in their decision, They did not believe that police enforcement diminishes the reputation of the court in the eyes of the public, and that the court and police are independent of each other. The justices also stated that they must uphold the law that allows a private company to do their work without interference from civil disobedience. In an article for CBC, Kathleen Code, spokesperson for the organization Rainforest Flying Squad, said that, quote, the judges have decided that a private corporation has incredible rights to enforcement, end quote. For our final update, we are heading south of the border to California, where ancient redwood trees are being returned to the care of the indigenous peoples of the area. An organization called Save the Redwoods League announced that it is transferring more than 500 acres on the Lost Coast, located in Northern California, to the Intertribal Cinqueone Wilderness Council, where a group of 10 tribes will be responsible for protecting the land. Save the Redwoods League purchased the land two years ago for $3.5 million to provide habitat for endangered bird species. The sale was funded by Pacific Gas and Electric Company, in order to mitigate for other environmental damages done by the company. The company has a poor track record, from a natural gas line explosion that caused the death of eight people in a neighborhood, to being blamed for sparking more than 30 wildfires in 2017. Priscilla Hunter, chairwoman of the Sinkion Council, said in an article for ABC News that, quote, "...it's fitting they will be caretakers of the land where her people were removed or forced to flee before the forest was largely stripped for timber. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa. We are rounding up the headlines you might have missed from the past couple of months while we were on a winter break. Next up, here's Sonic Patel with some local Edmonton news, where the court has dismissed judicial review to halt the council-approved EPCOR solar farm project in the River Valley.
3: Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel. If you've been following energy decisions in the city of Edmonton, You might be familiar with the E.L. Smith Solar Farm, a 51-acre solar project proposed to be developed in Edmonton's River Valley. The 12-megawatt solar farm is planned to be adjacent to and to power the E.L. Smith Water Treatment Plant and reduce utility company EPCOR's greenhouse gas emissions by 20%. But the environmental benefits of the solar farm are not as clear-cut as one might expect. While renewable energy will reduce carbon emissions, the location of the solar farm in the River Valley, a contiguous green space in the heart of Edmonton, and home to many flora and fauna species, drew the ire of some groups and peoples concerned about biodiversity impacts. The project and fencing around it are expected to reduce connectivity for wildlife and increase the risk of injury or death from collisions with that infrastructure. However, in exchange, 31.5 acres were transferred from EPCOR to the city for conservation purposes, and the project would add 7.4 acres of treed areas. So how do you balance the need for renewable energy with the protection of key ecosystems? It's a real Sophie's choice for environmentalists, and also a choice for the 13 members of Edmonton City Council who deliberated the merits of rezoning to allow the development in October 2020. The decision came down to a hair. Wait, sorry, I misspoke. The decision came down to a mayor of the city, who joined six other councillors to approve the decision, resulting in a 7-6 vote in support of the development. The decision came after multiple years of engagement and deliberation. The Edmonton River Valley Conservation Coalition who are a group that, well, all the information you need is really in the name. Anyways, the Edmonton River Valley Conservation Coalition challenged the decision in court, claiming that council did not follow appropriate procedure because they did not vote on whether the solar farm was essential, which they allege is necessary in the River Valley bylaw. The judicial review from an Alberta Court of Queens bench judge found that voting on whether the solar farm is essential would only have been required if the project was a major public facility, or if the city was putting money into the project, which it isn't even though EPCOR is wholly owned by the city because they are a separate and arm's length entity. The coalition also expressed concern that councillors focused on financial benefits over social and environmental concerns. However, the judicial review also found that counselors are allowed to make decisions based on the considerations they think are best for the community, even if they prioritize economic factors over other considerations. So the controversial E.L. Smith solar farm is moving forward, and it looks like we might see some panels in the River Valley pretty soon. The project is an example of conflicting environmental values and views as we try and balance a global climate crisis with protecting the local places and species that are most valuable and important to us. This has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks Sonic! For our final story, Lizzie Barron brings us a good news story in the form of an important site in Alberta getting a conservation boost for grasslands and wildlife.
4: Second, 2021. The Nature Conservancy of Canada announced that with a recently acquired 43-hectare property called the Belly River property, they've expanded the conservation areas around Waterton Lakes National Park. Yay! The new conservation area is next to 800 meters of the Belly River, which provides crucial habitat for a variety of birds, amphibians, and fish. The property itself is largely comprised of native grassland which is an endangered ecosystem and home to 85% of Alberta's species at risk, according to the Nature Conservancy of Canada. What are some of the species at risk that now have expanded habitat, you may ask? It might not be what you first think of, but endangered libra pine trees are growing through the property. These trees are characteristic of native grasslands and in crucial need of protection, as recently reported by digital reporter Nathan Howes for the Weather Network. In terms of critters, the Waterton Lakes National Park and Belly River area provides homes and crucial habitat for animals such as wolves, cougars, wolverines, lynx, and grizzly bears. The density of big predators in the region means there is high biodiversity, including enough prey, animals, and other food sources. The Belly River property, with its large, open, and expansive grasslands, will be a great fit for these iconic predator species, especially the grizzly bear. Grizzly bears are considered at risk by the province of Alberta, due in large part to habitat loss and human encroachment. Hopefully, this land will continue to be protected, flourish, and provide a home for species from pine trees to grizzly bears and all in between. Stay grassy, Alberta!
0: Thanks, Lizzie. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, or check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week for another new episode right here on Terra Informa.